Well, good morning again. I'd like to ask you, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. When I was in about second grade, I remember very distinctly having a class at my church that was led by a woman named Rhonda Hawkinson. And that night, Rhonda Hawkinson, it was a Wednesday night, she taught us all about the Passover, and she wanted to walk us through what a Passover service would have been like. So she had us all sit on the floor, and she put a blanket on the ground, and she, she kind of imitated, to the best of her ability, what she thought some of these things would be. And I remember very distinctly that she said, we're going to be passing around some of these elements, and we're going we're to try them, we're going to taste them, we're going to smell them, so that we can experience what this will be like. And one of the things she noted was that when we passed them around, some of them were going to be on one spoon, and we we're going to have to share that spoon. Back then, you could do those sorts of things. And so I decided I wanted to be first. Obviously, you don't want to be the last person if you're sharing the spoon. So I was committed to going first. Honestly, I don't know if it was a germ thing or if it was more of I just wanted to be the first one in line, but I committed myself to being first. I asked many times. I placed myself in the room in such a position that I would have to be directly to her left so that I would be the first. And then she decided to pass around the bitter herbs. Now, I don't think she really knew what the bitter herbs were, so to the best of her ability, she found something that was similar. She found a jar of creamed horseradish. And so she took a large spoonful of the horseradish and she handed it to me. And then me, being first, ate the entire spoonful. I didn't realize she just wanted us to smell it. And I ate the whole thing. I asked to be first and I immediately regretted it. Today we're going to see Israel get what they ask for and we're going to be watching for the entire rest of the book of 1 Samuel, the consequences of their request play out. So please follow along as I start reading, beginning at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. This is a message from the King of Heaven, delivered today for your joy and for your sanctification. This is God's Word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, 
and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, this ancient Old Testament political text, Lord, I ask that you would please help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. I ask, Father God, that you would help us to see the desperate nature of every person in this room to bow the knee to a great king, King Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. In order to best understand this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it by considering seven points. The prophet priest, the predicament, the proposal, the problem, the presentation, the permission, and finally the point. If you didn't catch that, don't worry. We're going to go back through them one at a time, beginning with point number one, the prophet priest. I think that I've tended to overlook the incredible ministry of Samuel for most of my life. I've always known about him. From the time I was a small child, I heard the stories of him hearing the word of the Lord and the stories of him interacting with David. But I never realized just how important he was. I never realized how significant of a figure he truly is in the scope of the Old Testament. Consider the unusual nature of Samuel's ministry in a trifold way toward Israel. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, we read that, quote, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Clearly, Samuel's role was a prophet who was to speak to the people whatever messages that God gave to him. When it says that not one word fell to the ground, that's a way of saying that whenever he spoke God's words, they knew it was true because they would come to pass. They didn't fall to the ground. They actually happened. But Samuel not only operated as a prophet, we also see that he operated as a priest. We see him functioning, for example, under the ministry of Eli in the tabernacle. And over the past few weeks, we have followed the ark as it traveled from the countryside of Israel, out to the Philistines, and then back to the countryside of Israel. And once the ark had been removed from the tabernacle in Shiloh, where Samuel grew up and where Eli was, once it had been removed from that place, it seems as though the center of worship in Israel moved with it. The last verse of chapter 7 is incredibly important. Just, if you've got your Bibles open on your lap, please just scroll your finger up to chapter 7, verse 17, and look what it says. 
Speaking of Samuel, it says, Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let me ask, what do you do on an altar? You sacrifice animals. The implication here is that Samuel used this new location as the center of worship during his period of ministry. So last week, for example, we saw that Samuel sacrificed a lamb on behalf of the Israelites, and as the lamb was being sacrificed, the Philistines were destroyed. Later in this book, we're going to see that Saul and his army get into a lot of hot water because they were instructed to wait until Samuel arrived to perform the sacrifices, indicating this responsibility was definitely not to be done by just anybody. Samuel operated as a priest of God. He was a prophet and a priest, but Samuel is also given the title of judge. The previous chapter hammers home this role with repetition. And remember, if the Bible wants to make you focus in on something, the way that the authors will get your attention is by repeating something. Notice how he hammers this thought home into our heads in chapter 7. In verse 6, he says, And Samuel judged the people of Israel. And then in verse 15, it says, And Samuel judged all of Israel all the days of his life. And then in verse 16, it says, And he judged Israel in all of these places. And in verse 17, it says, And there also he judged Israel. He was a judge. But if you know the book of Judges very well, then you might find this to be a little odd because Samuel doesn't really look like any of the other judges. All of the other judges, all 12 of them from the book of Judges, are warriors who basically function as military leaders or rogue warriors who fought and killed whatever Canaanite nation had attacked them. And up to this point, Samuel hasn't done anything like that. He's not a warrior. And although we do see him eventually kill an enemy king in just a few chapters, that seems to be the exception and definitely not the rule of his ministry. But that's not the only unusual aspect of his role as judge. There's also the scope of his authority. All of the other judges, every last one of them, they only were tasked to protect one or at most two tribes of Israel. None of them had influence over all 12 tribes. But Samuel is often said to be the judge over all of Israel or that all of Israel would gather before him or in our chapter today that the elders of all Israel came to him. Eventually, when he does anoint a king, notice that all 12 tribes, every one of them, accept Saul as their king, and they bow their knees in support, indicating that Samuel did have influence and authority over them. Samuel became the first man since Joshua that had that broad of authority. And there's one more incredible important difference between Samuel as a judge and all the other judges. The other judges were not political leaders of any kind. They didn't give instruction to the people about how to live or how to function. They just fought the enemies of God. But Samuel here has become a de facto ruler. Well, how do we know that? Because the people of Israel felt like they needed to ask him in order to set up a king. And listen to the way they ask in verses 5 and 6. They said, now appoint for us a king to do what? to judge us like all the nations. But it says, but this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. They are viewing the role of Samuel to be roughly the same thing as the role of a king. They want the king to do what Samuel was already doing. They just didn't want Samuel's kids to do it. 
Now, we're going to dig a little deeper into the request in a few minutes, but I have intentionally spent some time here to draw out this point so that we notice the fact that Samuel is operating as a prophet and a priest and a prototypical king. The only person who has ever fulfilled all three of these roles in any way prior is Moses. And the only one who is going to fulfill these roles in the future is going to be Jesus. And this parallel provides us with some of the tools that we need to understand what is going on in this chapter. And as we move forward, we're going to see some very important connections between Samuel and Jesus. Which brings us to point number two, the predicament. Samuel was a great leader. And it seems like everybody knew that he was a great leader. It seems like he had a lot of support from these elders in Israel. They respected him. They acknowledged that he was a good king and that he was or a good judge and that he was a good leader and that he had brought peace to the nation. He had led the people even in revival, as we learned last week. But as we read in verse 1, there was a problem. He's getting old. In his old age, Samuel established his two sons to function in his place. But sadly... If you read about them, it looks like they are operating much more like Hophni and Phinehas did than like Samuel, their father. In particular, it underscores the fact that they had taken bribes in order to pervert justice. Now, those are not words that are presented there haphazardly or at random. One of the chief commandments that God gave Moses regarding the justice that was to take place amongst the civil magistrates in Israel is found in Exodus chapter 23. And here's what it says in verses 6 through 8. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Now, notice here in our chapter today, it says that they perverted justice, exactly the thing they were told not to do. How do you avoid doing that? Verse 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So now we get to this chapter and we see that the people who have been set up to lead are actually doing exactly what they were told not to do. These men were not fit to rule, and just like everyone knew that about Hophni and Phinehas, now everyone knows it about these two sons of Samuel. Their reputation for injustice was known everywhere. And they knew that Samuel was eventually going to die, and they did not want those men to rule over them. So we arrive at point number three, the proposal. You see, the elders of Israel, they gathered together to talk these things over with Samuel. And I find that to be quite reasonable. We don't know a lot about that meeting. We know where it was, but we don't really know a great deal about what they discussed. I can't imagine that people traveled from all over the countryside and they only said two sentences. But, recorded in the text, we only have the bottom line. Two sentences. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's it. That is the centerpiece of everything that they had to say. And initially... Samuel seems to be personally offended by this. The ESV simply translated that he was displeased. So he did what any mature believer should do. He took it to the Lord in prayer. And when the Lord responded to Samuel, he began by helping Samuel get his eyes off of himself. Samuel, stop looking at you and look at what they're really doing. God said, quote, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, there's something interesting that happens here. There's a principle that can help you think about how to respond when somebody offends you. When somebody sins against you, 
When somebody says something that gets under your skin, when somebody does something that legitimately harms you in some way, it's really easy to feel like you are the ultimate target. It's really easy for you to feel like you are the only one that matters in the equation. But it can be very helpful to recognize that their sin is not primarily targeting you. Their sin is primarily targeting God himself. You are simply getting hit by collateral damage. Here, were they sinning against Samuel? Absolutely. In fact, later on, God is going to say something to the extent that just as they rejected me and turned to idols, in the same way, they are now rejecting you. Yes, they were doing something wrong toward Samuel. But God tries to remove Samuel's attention from himself and start to think about this offense in a biblical and godly way. Seeing this reality can help us all when we are offended to grow in compassionate, prayerful, gracious responses to those who attack us. And we see Samuel here move forward in such a way that is incredibly godly. He moves forward with compassionate pleading and with wise instruction. He's not vindictive. He doesn't burst out in an attack. He doesn't defend himself. He is able to simply honor the Lord, face the people, these people that no longer value him in any way, the ones that want him to be replaced, and he just gently gives them the truth. But there's a much deeper issue at stake, which brings us to point number four, the problem. Let me just ask, what, what's the big deal here? Like, why is this a problem? Why is it such a big deal for Israel to ask for a king? You see, God had never commanded them not to have a king, in fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses had given very clear instructions about how the process would work when the time came for them to have a king. He said, quote, when you come into the land of the Lord that, you're, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And there are the instructions. So far, it appears the people of Israel are doing exactly what they were told to do. They didn't try to nominate somebody themselves. They went to Samuel, their prophet priest, and they said, can you identify a person for us from the Lord? And they don't plan to put a foreigner on the throne. They said, we want someone from us to be king. So what's the big deal here? Aren't they just doing what they were told to do? Well, seven, several commentaries that I have read identify the problem as it being just too soon. You just asked at the wrong time. One of them gave the example that I'm going to adopt, and I'm just going to twist it a little bit into my own context so that it fits our family. You see, I have a daughter, Petra. She's up here. And now just imagine that today we get home and we're going to have lunch together. And she says to me, Daddy, before we left church, uh, there was a little boy that proposed to me. <laughs> now look, I love my daughter. I want her to get married. What if she said to me, and I'm going to get married to him? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> not any time in the near future. Look, I, I, I love my daughter and I want what's best for her. But that means saying no until it's the right time. And most of the people who describe what's going on here just describe it like that. They should have known that it was the wrong time, and they asked at the wrong time. And therefore, when, when they asked, it was a problem because they should have known that they were just like a 10-year-old girl and not an adult. But, thankfully, I'll just tell you, my daughter told me the other day that she hates romance, so we're good to go. Don't, 
If any little boys are asking, I'm watching you very carefully. (laughs) But you see, the commentators who highlight that this is the problem, I think are missing the main point. You see, the request itself is not the problem. It's the reason that they made the request. God clearly identifies the problem. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. The Lord tells Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to even this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Do you see the problem here? Every problem that Israel has ever faced boils down to the fact that they would reject God as their king. The problem is not the words they were saying. It's not even the requests they were making. It's the reason they were making it. It's because they had rejected God as their ruler. Their nation was designed as a theocracy, which just simply means God is set up as the king of their land. The book of Judges has this common refrain that we've heard many times. There was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. But do you realize that the reason that they sinned in such egregious ways is because they thought there was no king in Israel. But God is telling us right here, right now, in this passage, he has always been their king. They just rejected it. They rejected him. And now they want a king like all the other nations, They rejected God as king, and although I doubt the elders of Israel would have ever used those words, re-reject God as king, I think even if they were confronted by Samuel, and Samuel said, look what you're doing, you're confronting God as, or you're rejecting God as king, I still don't think they would have even recognized it. But God knew their hearts, and he viewed that request as a form of idolatry. The problem is they, they had already been given a king, a good king, a perfect king, a wise king, a kind king. God himself, but they wanted a king like the nations. Looking for a king when you already have a king is called rebellion. They were looking to a man to provide what God had already promised that he would give if they would just follow him, and that is called idolatry. Look down to verses 19 and 20 where we see their ultimate response to Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a king who would fight on their behalf. Do you realize God had already promised to do that? In fact, in their parents' generation, they had seen God do that. But an entire generation has grown up since the revival we learned about last week in chapter 7. And we saw that Ebenezer stone that was stood up to remind them God has helped us. God had fought for them. God won that battle. He had promised many times that he would do this very thing. But one generation later, the people had already forgotten. They doubted God's love and God's power and God's promises. Which brings us to point number five, the presentation. Look at verse nine. It says, Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, I grew up in a magical time in American history, (laughs) a time when your school or your youth group or your friends, they could just take you somewhere with some level of danger, and you just did it. Theme parks, rock climbing, snowboarding, motorsports, boating, you name it, we never signed a paper. But when I was around 16-year-old, the world changed. 
for around that time, if you wanted to do just about anything, you had to start signing waivers. And the waiver would usually list a bunch of things that could possibly go wrong. And so what some parents would do is they would get this piece of paper and they would read it. And then they would see all of the possible things that could go wrong, like paralysis or broken neck or coma. And they would just look at their kid and say, you're not going. And other parents would just not read it and just sign it. And then we would go do whatever we were going to do anyway. But we do this sort of thing all the time. When you watch an ad for medicine, the list of side effects is usually about 50% of the ad. But when the doctor recommends it, you still go down to the pharmacy and you pick up a bottle. Or maybe a better illustration would be to simply ask, have any of you actually ever read... Well, let me look. Yep, Dan Herman is not here. He's on vacation this week. Have any of you actually ever read any of the fine print when you are trying to install software on your computer? Or do you do what everyone else does and just scroll to the bottom and click, I agree? Samuel was told by God, Provide the fine print. Read it in detail. Spell it out to them. Show them the dangers of having an earthly king. Tell them why this is a terrible idea. Inform them what they are signing up for. And not only that, these are not possible outcomes like you might find in a waiver. In the case of whatever, then we will not cover it. No, this is not a possible outcome. This was not a worst-case scenario list. This was a prophetic promise. Samuel provides a litany of ways that a king would abuse his power. Samuel wasn't just making this list up out of thin air. This was not an educated guess based on the nations around him. Verse 10 tells us, these are the words of the Lord. He delivered all the words that the Lord gave him And this list was divinely provided. God himself provided them with all of the side effects. And he graciously gave them another chance to listen to Samuel. And do you think they were persuaded? No. But do you think you would be persuaded? Well, listen to the side effects one more time. He says, these will be the ways of thinking. Now, I'm going to read this quickly like it would be at the end of a medical ad. He will take from you your sons and appoint them over his chariots and his horsemen to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and some to reap the harvest and some to make his implements of war and some to make equipments for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards. And he will give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and the tenth of your, uh, your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. And he will put them to work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks and he will make you his slaves. And on that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself but the Lord will not answer you in that day would you agree to this list now perhaps you're just saying to yourself these guys are idiots like who would sign up for that I would never have accepted that deal but wouldn't you wouldn't you though let's just change the warning label just a little bit and what if it said if you do this you will die And then you will experience eternal death and judgment under the wrath of God. Would you sign on for that? But you have. That's the contract that you have agreed to. The wages or the payment for sin is death. 
Every time you have ever sinned, it is a declaration in your heart that you do not want God to rule over you. You do not want what he desires and what he requires. You are going to reject his rule and you're going to search for a king that will let you live like everyone else. Samuel's presentation should have revealed to the people that God's way is the better way. But they were so sold on their own plan that they completely ignored God's word. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. This is where we arrive at point number six, the permission. Did you notice that there were three times in the chapter that God told Samuel to obey the voice of the people? But the people did not obey the voice of Samuel. This is a total inversion of God's design. And over the remainder of the book, we are going to see the consequences of this decision play out in the life of Samuel. And it's going to become painfully clear that sometimes the worst thing that God can do for you is just give you what you want. Take another look at what the people are asking for in verse 5. They said, Now appoint us for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Those are the words that we have recorded. And then God told Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Now, that is a really interesting line. Because in the final analysis, the Israelites are going to cry out, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. They wanted a king like the other nations. So God said, give them exactly what they're asking for. And over the next 23 chapters, we are going to see Saul act exactly like the kings of the other nations. Being that they were acting out of cowardice instead of faith, they probably still would have been fine with Saul's rampant sin. But imagine, imagine if they could just flash forward and they could see that this king that they wanted to go out and fight for them and defend them and be the one who goes forward on the battlefield for them. Imagine if they could just look forward down through the corridors of time and see Goliath standing out there on the field against them and see that Saul is in his tent cowering behind the nation and then he sends a little boy to fight for the nation. The Israelites in this chapter told God what they wanted and God gave them the desire of their wicked hearts. But just like God warned them, they're going to reap all the side effects, and they're going to get none of the benefits. Which brings us now to our final point, which is the point. You see, Jesus gave us the primary tool of hermeneutics in John chapter 5, verse 39, when he says, you, have this, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, told them that the chief thing to understand about the Old Testament is it's all about me. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're reading about Jesus. And in order to show you how, let's flash forward to four brief scenes in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Scene number one, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. And then roughly two years later, wise men showed up to Jerusalem, and they're asking about this newborn king of the Jews. And of course, that made the man who was currently called the king of the Jews pretty uncomfortable and unhappy. So King Herod told the wise men, just go and find the baby so that I too can go worship him. The very God who was king over Israel all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 had now visited them in human flesh. But instead of giving him the crown, the king tried to have Jesus killed. Scene number two, much later, Jesus, the true and better judge, is standing before Pilate, an unjust judge. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. Or better translation maybe, as you say. But instead of bowing down and acknowledging Jesus as Lord, what does Pilate do? He instead listens to the will of the mob. Which brings us to scene number three. Pilate took Jesus outside the, to the mob. He marched him forward and he said, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. What we have here is the ultimate conclusion of 1 Samuel chapter 8. The same exact heart is on display. The people have rejected God as their king. They want a king like the nations. And the king of Israel, the king of the nations, raged against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from me. They refused to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. They rejected him to such an extent that they conspired to kill him. But that brings us to our fourth and final scene. You see, Jesus did die. He was crucified, but he did not remain in the grave. And on the third day, he rose, and he is ruling right now as king. But notice the kingly language when Paul describes Christ's rule in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, Herod, Pilate, all those people who said crucify him in that crowd, every last one of them will eventually confess Jesus Christ is Lord. They will all recognize him as king and so will all of us. That's going to happen either right now in this life or it's going to happen after. Every person ever born will physically bow before Jesus and verbally acknowledge that he is the supreme ruler and authority of their life. And the question is, when will that happen? Option number one is that you go through life just like the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You look for a substitute king, somebody that's like the other nations that is going to give you what you want. Maybe for you that really is a political figure. But more likely, you're just going to view yourself as the king of your own life. And you're going to imagine that God is not really in charge and that you can get away with living according to your own standards. And if you die in that state, then you will bow before the Lord Jesus. And he is going to speak judgment to you on your way into eternal judgment. But there is good news for everyone in this room. You see, the thing is, every last one of us has rejected at some point God as king. All of us start that way. We are rebels. We are enemies. We're the ones promoting insurrection against the king of the universe. But there is good news that we don't have to stay in that camp. There is good news that you can know and you can follow and be brought into the family of this king. He delights in saving us. He delights in bringing us into his kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 describes our salvation like this. Putting it all in God's hands, it says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Look, if you have been saved, it is because God sought you and he bought you and he brought you into his kingdom to worship Jesus as king forever. And if you have not yet been saved, you need to know that the Lord delights in doing that very thing, in bringing people into his kingdom. And if you will only look to him and acknowledge him as king, and you see that he is the king who died to pay your debt, then you will be saved. If that's you today, please, don't be like the Israelites. Don't harden your heart. Don't look for a substitute. Don't ignore the warning. Repent and follow Jesus as your king today. Let's pray. Father God, I give you great thanks for this incredible passage. And I just ask, Father, that you would help us to hear your word, to, to apply your word, to live in accordance with your word. And I ask, Lord, if there is anyone in this room who is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, what a wonderful gift it would be this Christmas, Lord, if you opened their eyes and saved them. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room who does know you but is currently trapped in some form of sin, that is currently worshiping another king, that they have set up an idol in their heart. Lord, I pray that you would use this text to tear it down, and that they would submit themselves fully and completely to you in all areas of their lives. And Lord, I pray for every one of us that through this word we would see Jesus the true and better prophet, priest, and king, the just judge, the authority, the ruler, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.